0: Oh shit! No, it's just me. Oh, so I'm so bad at this. I'm so sorry. Right? Uh, fuck. can wait.
1: We will edit around this. Don't worry. Do you want me to okay, ask the question go. again? I'm <laughs> yes, so
0: please. excited to hear about the edit this one. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to leave this in for the editor. Like, I'm so profoundly sorry that you have to like deal with this shit. Like.
2: Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Social Review Podcast. I am your host, Jasper, at jasperch on Twitter. Joining me this week, we have got...
3: I'm David, uh, at dmk1793 on Twitter.
4: I'm Henry, at owlsancturist on Twitter.
5: I'm Tessa, at Tess Milsey on Twitter. Welcome back to the
2: podcast, Tessa. It's been quite a while. You're in the first episode and now we're on episode 14, I think. Thanks for, thanks for coming back. Um, and thanks to David as well for coming on uh, for the first time. And I'm also here. Henry, all right, well, you've been on before, so I didn't want to be like, oh, and thanks to... Okay, thanks. Thank you, Henry, for Thanks. Back. It means a lot. I don't know if any of you noticed, but British government is on fire um, and has been for the past week or so. Much talk has been made about the British constitution, uh, the lack of it, what it makes up what is there of it, um, whether it's any good, what can be done to reform it. Um, so to get away from kind of reactionary discussion of British politics with the ever-changing nature of things going on. As we speak and record, the MPs are debating in parliament about no deal legislation, which will either make or break the government and will determine whether there is is an early general election or not. We're gonna be talking about the constitution and constitutional reform and what can be done um, to make it a little bit better or um, enshrine it in law and that kind of thing. So, um, David, if we start with you, um, you have actually worked on this thing this thing being the constitution properly, in actual proper job jobs, um, with the Constitution Society and the Institute for Government. So in your mind, uh, as a result of your research, what needs changing about the British constitution?
3: Well, I think one of the interesting things about what's been going on is to a large extent, what we have is a political crisis, much more than a constitutional crisis. Now, the behaviour of the government over the last few days, particularly Michael Gove uh, threatening to simply disobey the law if Parliament passes anti-no-deal legislation certainly threatens to make this into a constitutional crisis but I'd say much more this is about a crisis of our political parties essentially we have a government in power that can either command a majority because so many people in its own party disagree with its policy but neither can it actually be toppled because party discipline is still strong enough to prevent MPs from actually voting no confidence in their government Although, of course, tonight's vote might see that change. So in terms of what what we might want to do about that, I would say that the key issue here is really electoral reform. The problem we have at the moment is we've got two political parties that are incredibly internally divided. And that status quo is essentially preserved by an electoral system that makes it impossible to form a new party. We saw that, obviously, with the SDP in the 1980s and also the pretty dismal fate, although I, in my view, deserved, of Change UK. So I would say electoral reform is probably the key issue on the agenda if you want to make the Constitution work again. But that's obviously something on which people have a number of different views. And I'm keen to hear what you all think.
4: The thing about, I think that the thing about the um, the British Constitution is that because it's so flexible, it can always be uh, kind of, it can always be used in a way which advantages the people who currently have the power which means that there's very little, there's generally very little desire to ever make the reforms which might long term mean it functions better. And I think that it's that kind of short term thinking which has really got us into this kind of problem with electoral reform in particular. Like there's never been an incentive for either Labour or the Conservatives to seriously think about introducing a re- voting system which reflects proportionality even a little bit. And there's always been the demands of their own party, which are pretty firmly set against throwing away their biggest tactical advantage. And now we're in a position where actually, it's completely possible that any attempt to get a stable majority in the next few years will be completely stimmied by, or that's not how you pronounce that word, will be completely blocked by the existence of first past the post, and in how it functions in the UK today. Because like, How on earth do you get some kind of sensible majoritarian uh, results out of a binary divide where you have the two main parties as incoherent coalitions of basically every different shade of opinion on the topic? And so in the absence of any real time or space for actually thinking about electoral reform, I think that we're going to find the two main parties have kind of shot themselves in the foot.
3: Yeah, I think that's exactly right in terms of why electoral reform has never happened. Ultimately, whoever's in power has an interest in preserving the current system. But what I suspect might put electoral reform at least more on the agenda in the coming years is that it looks quite unlikely that there are gonna be very many strong majorities uh, in the future. It looks like hung parliaments are increasingly looking like they're gonna be the norm. And in that case, I think that'll give the small parties an increasing amount of bargaining power to start to demand what they want. I mean, we've seen in this parliament, the influence that the DUP has had if the SNP or the Lib Dems or even the Greens or who knows what are able to wield that kind of influence, I think we could easily see electoral reform being put onto the agenda.
2: So if this is a political crisis rather than a constitutional crisis, what more can be done to prevent um, political these kind of political crises occurring within parliament um, beyond just reforming the electoral system? Is that Would that kind of represent... Um, enough of an endpoint, point? Um, or is there more that could be done? Tessa, I wonder if you have any thoughts on that?
5: I guess my thoughts are kind of on something like, if you look at something like devolution, what Brexit politically has thrown up, and I know this ties into the constitution, is, for example, with Scotland voting Remain, can the UK constitutionally pull Scotland out of the EU? There's still questions over how how devolved issues are like if you look at such a huge issue like brexit which completely changes our constitution in terms of separating us from all of the treaties of the eu some of which have been the kind of most immovable parts of our constitution up until now can you make such a a huge huge change in our system without the consent of all parts of the UK essentially and if we were to reform the constitution and you know maybe write a few more bits down just how much is devolved is there going to be a situation where for huge questions like this in future every part of the UK has to consent then that throws up a whole other you know issue of you know they won't let us do this that you know fracturing the union. I also think if we had smaller parties um and a situation where most governments are coalitions and things like that i think we'd have perhaps slightly less adversarial politics i mean we'd still have parties that hate each other that's not really going to change ever you'll have parties that are always aware that they may have to work with the person they're attacking at some point if that makes sense and that might change the u k politically, if we have a more kind of consensus based politics, and I also think you'd see politicians vote a lot more along the lines of what they really believe the The majorities would be dependent on coalitions and not so much a you know a three line whip from a major party where the government is running on a majority of one i can't I can't remember the quote I think it's from Julius Caesar about we are all honorable men. The fact that our constitution is so dependent on honour and the idea that people are ultimately good and we won't have people like Boris Johnson who want to test it to its limits. I
3: think you're absolutely right that that does essentially rely on everyone agreeing to play by the rules. And you're completely right that what we're seeing now is the dangers of a government that is unwilling to do that. And yes, I think you raised Tess, a huge number of great points there um i think you're particularly right about the way that the electoral system has forced debates within parties that's actually something i talked about in the paper i published a few months ago uh, the electoral system in british politics by not allowing our parties to sort of divide amongst themselves into a more multi-party system we now have a situation where the big debates on issues like brexit are not really between the two parties which in 2017 for instance had relatively similar positions but really they're happening within the parties between different factions And that's something that I think creates a sort of democratic problem, because it means that if you want to participate in the debate, you need to be active within a party, trying to change a party's policy, rather than simply as an ordinary voter, choosing between them. Um, And I think you you made another really good point about the role the EU plays. Um, And effectively today, some of our only constitutional legislation is European legislation. Uh, It was the sort of European Communities Act uh, and the important role that plays in ensuring the transfer of European law into British law that was actually one of the first pieces of legislation that judges described as constitutional legislation when making judgments about how laws should be interpreted and carried out. Um, And it will definitely be interesting to see whether the removal of that European legislation will necessitate the creation of a more sort of formal constitutional structure. And again, I think you're absolutely right to highlight devolution as one of the key issues there, because currently it's European legislation that often prevents too much policy divergence between the Scottish government and the UK government on a whole load of issues, because if an issue is controlled by European legislation, for instance, agricultural and fisheries policy, you can't end up with divergence happening between Scotland and the rest of the UK. But now that that is being taken away, should we leave the EU, the British government is actually desperately trying to work out uh, a series of what they call common frameworks to prevent there being too much conflict between Scottish and British government policy. And obviously the Scottish government is incredibly unhappy with that because they're saying, you're actually taking back powers that you had devolved to us. And so, yes, I think it's in the conflicts between uh, the, different, the different layers of UK government that we're more likely to see uh, a full-blown constitutional crisis as opposed to the political crisis of today.
2: Henry, you said you were concerned about legitimacy. Do you think that greater devolution needs to occur in order for there to be, for the executive to have stronger legitimacy? The
4: problem with the British system as legitimacy coves is just that it's all based so, as Tessa says, it's all based so purely and like unadulteratedly on honor and discretion. And basically there's no institutional program of checks or accountability. And that's fine as far as it goes, but there are moments, and, you know, there have been a lot of moments, actually, over the past hundred years. Like, there have been moments where that system has been tested to breaking point. It's worth noting that the um, it's, it's easy to forget about because people in Great Britain, words chosen advisedly, do their very best to pretend that this is a has been a stable and functioning democracy for centuries and centuries and centuries. But actually, when you look at how Ireland has always impacted on the British Constitution, it's very hard to make that case really work. Like when you look at the civil rights of Irish, Catholic, of Irish Catholics in Northern Ireland, that's obviously a part of it. But there's also the fact that the the British Constitution was repeatedly put under massive strain by the fact that in part of the UK there was a civil war going on for. 40, 30 years, and that's the the great issue which is, of course, now coming up again and that we've all tried, I think, collectively to essentially erase, which is that the British constitution simply hasn't actually evolved towards perfection, as people like to think, like it's evolved in a way which we can muddle through with, but that doesn't actually offer that many fundamental sources of legitimacy and therefore doesn't really offer a kind of arbitrator for when different branches of government or different governments disagree. And when you get new stuff which is kind of cobbled on there, you end up with this problem where um, where the, the devolved government's position in the British constitutional settlement, I think, is really unclear. And, f- for example, like we've never really answered the question of, let's say that tomorrow... Parliament woke up and decided to revoke the various devolution acts from the late 90s and abolish the Scottish and Welsh parliaments. Now, legally, it would, I'm pretty sure, be perfectly in its right to do that. But I'm pretty sure that that would be seen as contrary to the intention of those referendum referenda in 1999 and to uh, the kind of constitutional settlement. But there's actually nothing stopping them from doing that. And that's the great problem of our lack of any kind of real check and balance in the system. And it's a a problem which is coming out more now, but which will, I mean, if there is a no deal Brexit against the wishes of Northern Ireland, which I think is a particularly important point, then we won't stop thinking about it, I feel.
2: Henry, do you think to create those checks and balances, we need to codify the constitution? We need to coalesce it into a single document, which clearly and concisely lays out what the constitution and constitutional boundaries are.
4: So I always used to think that we should kind of prize the flexibility that we've been offered and value the the fact that we don't have that. But I'm increasingly coming around to the position that it's simply unsustainable and that we can't just rely on the fact that for example, like we can't rely on the fact that every government says, "Okay, it's fine because the Parliament Act and the Human Rights Act and so on are like fundamental and they're very very important they're not actually legally binding on us but they're really really important we can't really rely on that anymore we can't just rely on the rely on the the willingness of the government to just let certain things be and I think that we need to have you need to have a constitution which is essentially designed for the worst case scenario and no constitution is actually in practice good enough to preserve liberal democracy in every scenario but as it turns out i think and i don't think that we're anywhere near losing that but you know if you look at if you look at where what you might call a kind of majoritarian autocracy is taking root in some parts of the world in places like hungary that's obviously hungary had a written constitution and so it's not a panacea but it is when you get into issues such as disproportionate representation in the electoral system so Hungary had a form of PR but it was uh, kind of miscued which meant that when Fidesz first won power they won two-thirds of the seats with just over half of the vote and that's what enabled them to entrench Orban's position to the extent that today I don't think you could describe it as a liberal democracy and I don't know I think that that's the problem which should be keeping us up at night. It's, um, it's a basic recommendation but the the play King Charles III is really good on the fact that there's actually no reason that a monarch on a thorny and contentious and divisive issue couldn't just say, actually, there is, you know, every other constitution has a role for, you know, or a lot of them have a role for an executive as a kind of constitutional backstop for, for you know, one for better word, as someone who can veto laws, which are clearly against fundamental rights. So why shouldn't I exercise that right? And imagine that the, the dilemma and the crisis that would create in our horrendous mess, mess of a system.
3: I, I think Henry's made a lot of great points there. I think I'm going to slightly disagree with you, actually, Henry, on the point about Hungary. I think Hungary, you're right, that there was a problem when Fidesz was able to win so many seats, but that was a problem of the electoral system, and Hungary was actually a country with a written constitution, uh, which the government has now managed to rewrite using their huge majority, so I'm not sure that the it's really a great, a great case for praising written constitutions and what's actually happened now is Fidesh have entrenched their own system with their own written constitution which is going to be very, un, very hard for any sort of new opposition governments to, to replace should they come into power and could end up preserving the legacy of the Fidesz government for longer than would otherwise have been the case. But actually just, just very briefly if it's all right I want to bring it back to what I thought was a really important point you made about the competing sources of legitimacy. Because traditionally, legitimacy is supposed to rely in Parliament. We have parliamentary sovereignty, and so a majority of Parliament ought to be able to essentially be the final say. And I think what we have at the moment is that essentially being challenged from two directions. Uh, In the more sort of immediate term, that's being challenged by the government. The problem we have at the moment is traditionally the government and the majority in Parliament are the same thing which means that there are, you don't get these problems over prorogation, for instance, because when the government wants to prorogue, that effectively means a majority of parliament wants to prorogue. And so we have a government that is using the powers traditionally reserved to a parliamentary majority in a case when it doesn't actually have a parliamentary majority. So for the first time in quite a while, government and parliament have sort of distinct wills, and I think that's creating a real issue. And so there you get that conflict of legitimacy. The government says, well, we were elected. The parliament is also elected. And then on the other hand, you have the sort of conflict, which I think you rightly raised when you talked about what would happen if Parliament attempted to undo devolution between Parliament on the one hand through and representative democracy and direct democracy through referendums. And that's kind of the problem with Brexit. We have a mandate derived directly from the people uh, in terms of the referendum result, but then we have a separate set of mandates uh, derived through the parliamentary election in 2017 and so you have this conflict as to what what really where does sovereignty really lie does it lie with the people directly uh, and thus you know the priority should be to implement the mandate of 2016 or does it lie in parliament with the people's elected representatives
4: yeah, i totally agree with what you've said about Hungary as an example and that i think that particularly what's important is to remember that as much as it seems that way when we're discussing these particular crises a written constitution actually doesn't solve everything and that we need to think really hard about how you get a political culture which is in some way resistant to these problems and I think as Tess rightly said earlier a more consensual less adversarial political culture is maybe one of the answers to that which probably a written constitution can't do a huge amount about at the end of the day.
5: Yeah I'd say like you know we kind of need an overhaul of how we do democracy in the UK anyway and I think that would include constitutional reform preferably with a written constitution in my opinion electoral reform um a clarification on devolved issues getting rid of the house of lords removing the monarch's role in our democracy there was an article in the new statesman um by i think it was adam wagner he's like a human rights lawyer and and he um he accepts in his article that a written constitution doesn't answer any questions and that it will throw up new questions especially if we're going to leave the European Union we have to have a document which clarifies everything which at the moment depends a lot of which depends on convention and and a huge deal of trust and I think you know we can have you know the the human rights the citizens rights enshrined in law through a constitution which cannot be repealed by any parliament i think that's one of the the kind of the things that i like uh, about the european union is the fact that it enshrines workers rights into law um which a british tory government cannot override cannot remove from our law and i think we'd have to look at you know the different rights in terms of e- equality um a bit of bit of workers rights in there you know what we would want in a constitution um to ensure that, you know, basically every citizen gets to live with dignity and protection from bad things. And we can do that I think while do while reforming the electoral system. Um, While reforming devolved issues i've actually been warming a lot lately to the idea of like federalism i used to think it was a bit of a i don't know i don't want to say wet wipe idea but like i was
2: going to suggest like wet wipe
5: yeah (laughs) yeah literally so i used to think it's such a wet wipe idea and and now the more i look at it the more i'm like there's such such huge regional inequality and, and differences across the uk like it almost makes sense to at least devolve some issues to a regional level. Um, and also, you know, reforming our voting system and and hopefully having uh, a written constitution and less adversarial politics. And I think that could be a winning combination. And sure, we might we might be dealing with complicated legal questions that are thrown up from a written constitution, but we'd at least get rid of, The possibility that a future Boris Johnson 2.0 could come and try and test the limits of our constitution again in such an extreme way.
2: So on the theme of uh, devolution and federalism, I think the fundamental tension in the UK is that the British government is supposed to be a union of equals between England, Scotland, Northern Ireland and Wales, but in practice it isn't due to geography Um, and outsized global political influence which makes it de facto a majoritarian English system uh, supplemented by Scotland and Wales uh, with Northern Ireland largely left to itself having its own constitutional crisis without a government for two years. This was something discussed several years ago but it's kind of fallen off the the, um, the zeitgeist since but do we solve these kind of issues and and fixed evolution through having an English parliament? Um, David, what do you think about that?
3: I think federalism is a very difficult thing to see how you make it work in the UK in any way, unfortunately. I think the issue we have with devolution is we solved one set of problems when we created the Scottish-Welsh, Scottish-Welsh parliaments and created a whole other set of problems due to sort of unequal representation now with England not having its own institutions. Because either we have an English parliament, in which case we have a sort of fully sort of federal or confederal model, with every nation of the UK having its own assembly. But the difficulty there is the England is so so dominant that the English parliament would become central. And you could easily see that resulting in Scotland and Wales becoming more rather than less marginalized. But then on the other hand, if you create regional assemblies, I'm not convinced that would work particularly well because ultimately I think sort of elected assemblies have to rest on a sort of regional identity. And that certainly, you know, exists in places like Yorkshire. I'm sure Yorkshire Assembly could work, but I'm from the southeast. And I'm really not convinced that there's enough southeast regional identity to make any kind of southeast parliament actually work. So I think it's very difficult to see how you actually do federalism. Um, certainly it's something we could move to in the future, but it's certainly something which I don't think there's an easy solution for how you manage any kind of federal system. If I had to choose, I would probably choose an English parliament over regional parliaments, but I think both, both routes are fraught with difficulty.
5: I'm not gonna lie. I absolutely hate the idea of an English parliament. Um, and I guess in terms of federalism, I'm more kind of warming to the idea rather than like, I'm not talking about regional assemblies, really. I, I wouldn't want a regional assembly, but I, I certainly think there's ways of incorporating more regionalism into our system. Um, you know, if if for example we change the House of Lords to be a fully elected system via proportional representation and maybe half of it's nationally proportionally representative and the rest is regionally proportionally representative or or have some kind of system where there are committees in you know, whatever the new House of Lords would be called, where there are regional committees made up of the MPs that have been elected to represent those regions that decide on issues or deliberate on regional issues in the same sort of way that um, MPs do for their much smaller constituencies, but less to do with kind of casework and more to do with perhaps they could be given certain sort of light powers to do with financial investment, financial decisions. You know, maybe there could be, I again, I don't know how this is going to work. It's It's not something that I've done a lot of research into, but perhaps some kind of like financial regional commissions that are, you know, incorporated democratically that are elected directly by the people living in that area that can make certain financial decisions or review certain financial decisions um, just because there is such huge regional inequality. It may be something as simple as uh, setting the student maintenance loan figures for that region. It may be a national commission which decides in a more kind of factual way. So, for example, you look at how the student loan system is split between London and non-London and London students get much higher access at least to a much higher maintenance loan people outside of London don't even though uh, if you look at certain cities in the UK for example I'd choose Oxford um, the cost of living in Oxford relative to the average income there is much uh, higher proportionally than in London or there may be other kind of financial demands in certain regions, in particular, really poor regions like the South West. You know, some of which is quite impoverished. Um, that can be made regionally. I don't. I don't necessarily mean regional assemblies. I actually don't like that idea either. But I. I don't like the idea of an English Parliament. I think that the parties, both parties, kind of nationally, have really disregarded. Um, Scotland, Northern Ireland and Wales as it is Um, and I would really not like to see parties that get elected on a UK wide level become more England centric than they are already and I fear that an English parliament would do that and that the emphasis, there would be a kind of really weirdly imbalanced emphasis on the English parliament. I understand we we have devolution, the emphasis is already on Westminster but... There's just something about an English parliament which just unsettles me, I think.
4: Because there is no constitutional protection and there's nothing to stop parliament from doing basically whatever it wants, the the British system has always been very reliant on essentially a kind of quite elitist approach to representative democracy in order to check any kind of tyranny of the majority developing and like a kind of, um, you know, if if... It's the classic example being, of course, that consistently 60 to 70% of people want to bring back the death penalty. And even though for 30 years there was nothing stopping us from doing that, um, Parliament just never would because the representatives decided that it wasn't anywhere near the right thing to do. Now, the interesting thing is, of course, that ended in 1998 because it's an important part of the European Convention of Human Rights that you don't have the death penalty. And I, although the ECHR has nothing to do with the EU, it is worth noting that it's these European agreements that have actually provided us with some sense of a bedrock of rights. As Tessa says quite rightly, it's these European agreements which have provided us with codified workers' rights, which we know can't be unpicked by the first government to get a fragile majority who comes along. Or even, you know, a government with a stable majority, which chooses to unpick everything like there's nothing to stop them repealing the 1689 Bill of Rights if they want, and it's like the 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 level of trust that we have in our politicians is perhaps excessive given everything we've seen over the past two and a half three years, and the level of faith that we've had and that we are now placing in them is particularly worrying because it's precisely this process which is suggesting that the the kind of safehold the kind of things preserving us from uh, a tyranny of the majority are increasingly problematic. On
1: Tuesday, the 27th of August, the EFL announced they had withdrawn uh, Bury Football Club's membership from the Football League following a long period of unpaid debts and a disastrous ownership under chairman Steve Dale. The club has existed for 134 years and like most football clubs is a bastion of its community. Uh, Just as we've gone to record, um, the EFL have announced that they're currently discussing um, with the other members of the Football League uh, the efforts to reinstate uh, Bury into League 2 next season. Um, as well, uh, Greater Manchester Police have said they're investigating reports of fraud at the club. This has all taken place with the backdrop of similar financial sh- issues at Bolton, who have been spared a similar fate after being uh, sold to Football Ventures Limited. To discuss all this, I am joined by...
0: William, that's uh, William Manier on Twitter. And uh, Peter, which is um, at PeterWhitehead5 on Twitter.
1: What does this uh, all say about football and the way it is governed and are there any lessons for sort of um, society at large?
0: So I I don't know about um, society at large per se, like my societal takes tend to be like society, we live in one. But um, I I think in terms of football, we have like the thing that I've written about quite recently is the absolute lack of attention that's been paid to any football that isn't the Premier League. So my piece, which I think has come out this week on the SOC Review, is looking at the um, consistent underfunding of grassroots and non-league football, particularly grassroots in this country. Um, like Dave, Dave, David Squires in The Guardian wrote um, quite a good line, which was, uh, anyway, in this cartoon, which was, um, if the pyramid burns, even those at the top will eventually choke. And I think that's what we're starting to see now at below the Premier League, which is like, Everyone that doesn't have the sort of vast resources that are concentrated at the top of the Premier League as they have been like, you know, let's be honest, in society at large for the past like 10 years, people who don't have that are starting to joke because there is just nowhere near the support. At the sort of grassroots level, you're seeing pitchers close down left, right and centre. You're sort of seeing um, like children's leagues folding across the country. You've got a situation now where like people's dads, you know, or mums are being asked to put their hands in their pockets to take coaching badges. Whereas, you know, on the continent, you've got good levels of funding there. And I think, you know, th- that that element of rottenness at the grassroots is filtering up, I think, towards like the sort of lower non-Premier League sides. I think that we just have a system now that's so entirely focused on the Premier League clubs which where the money is, that no one really gives much of a shit about anyone who's not in that.
1: I think it's tough to see where the book stops in terms of regulation, because, like, the FA seem to have slightly wiped their hands on of this sort of situation, and then you've got the EFL, who have, who seem to be all over the place on, on exactly the right course of action, and the fit and proper ownership tests seem to be totally unfit for purpose. Um and when football clubs have such an important place in sort of communities, but being run by owners such as uh, Dale who basically has no interest in football, he admitted himself on a Five Live interview that was yeah. doing the rounds on Twitter um, he didn't really have much of an interest in Barry itself, he said he's never really been there before, he owned the club and he can just walk away and doesn't have to ever return like he's no reason to um, so it's not a normal business and and Yet the sort of authorities at large are really struggling to sort of work out exactly how 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 you regulate a system such as that. Um, I mean, there's obviously morals abroad to look at. Are any of those worth looking at? So the German system, there's some fan ownership involved there, and um, I think uh, there's similar things in like Sweden and things. So is that a direction they can go in? And and who is it in charge of? administrating those sort of regulations and rules for the for the league.
0: I think the German model is um is is an interesting one because I think there's a tendency amongst like football fans, like particularly the sort of you know, sort of left leaning, probably read like Mundial own I mean, like vintage football kits kind of football fan. He says staring at his own vintage football kits but um yeah i think the german model has kind of become a a sort of catch-all meme collective ownership is something that i obviously i'm i'm for um but i think that in terms of the various models it can take i think that really needs to be looked at i don't think we can you know realistically do a wholly fan owned club and at premier league level i think i think that broadly speaking that would probably Just not fly. I think the level of capital investment in the Premier League is at a a point where it's it's just not financially feasible. Uh, I think the fifty plus one model, which is like the sort of like you know the most touted German one, I think obviously that's that's good. It does work in Germany, although you know there is an argument to be had that it can stifle competitiveness. Like just look at the German league getting dominated by like Bayern with the odd. Bit of dortmund now and then and also like there are ways around it um so um i think it's rp leipzig um whereas like most german clubs have like thousands of members on the sort of in, you know in the in the members association rb leipzig have like 17 18. uh so like you know a lot of other clubs uh it costs like 50 euros to be a member at leipzig it's a thousand pounds sorry, thousand euros rather so effectively like the the so-called members association basically just assists of basically just consists rather of like people that red bull want there so you know it it, it, it's not although you know it is nominally different from the premier league in practice it's exactly as unaccountable as like the worst ran premier league club i think that um i i'm pretty sure this is something that labor have actually got in the manifesto so I was, I was at um, I was at like a football thing with uh, with Big John at the World Transformed last year uh, back home in Liverpool, and I'm pretty sure that there's a there's sort of fans on boards model. Like yeah, like like Hoffenheim have a uh, sort of fans on board model, which is basically like look, there is yes, there's private investors, yes, there's private equity involved in this, but the big elements of the club have to be sanctioned by uh element of the fan base who are voted on by the common members membership of that group can cost a nominal sum i think in my article i spitball like what if we just made it 40 50 quid um and then these people can veto takeovers they have more sort of um input over the control of the club and, you know even at premier league level i think this could work and i think we i think it would be popular if you look at like a lot of fans at various clubs they don't like the owners. arsenal fans hate Cronky, united fans don't like the Glazers. you know i am you know i've been the full family whole life i remember when we had you know hanks and gillette and that was awful and you know community groups like uh sort of spirit of shankly that really did really good work in trying to trying to oust them so yeah i i think we need to look at collective ownership but I think we need to have a good idea of what kind of model we're going for.
6: See, this absolutely fascinates me because I wish that, because I'm not great with football, um, if you can't tell by my accent, um, <laughs> but like, I, um, we don't have anything like this in music, which is where I come from in this perspective where like, that, again, is a very much an expression, at least at the grassroots, of working class ethos and values and entertainment but we don't have anything about ownership. There isn't anything like comparatively. I'd probably say, you know, we've got our venues where football has, um, you know, pitches and whatnot. And whereas there are club owners, aside from very, very select instances, no one knows who owns these big labels. You know, you've got dirty hit, which is owned by uh, Matt Healy from the 1975, but there's absolutely no, like. The way that we handle accountability is whoever gets the most streams on Spotify, for instance, and that's really not a reliable way, a a reliable way, because obviously, first day streams and stuff is all influenced by advertising. So I'm genuinely like astounded that that's, like I'm I was never aware that this is the level to which football interprets its own ownership, and I'm I'm in awe, I'm very very jealous, because as like. When my band had to look to set up its own label because we weren't happy with the ownership structures of other labels, this is one thing we b- we thought we were like, "Well, what if every member of the uh, every member of the bands that we sign owned parts of the label? We're looking into fan ownership um in some level, but it's all completely experimental. There's basically no label that does this, and it means that in the grand scheme of things you have you have entities like Festival Republic, which is an absolute monopoly owning Reading and Leeds, Download, Isle of Wight, um, portions of Glastonbury. They're all owned by the same people, which is absolutely ridiculous when you think about it, but it is just the way it is. So not only does you know, fan ownership divest from you know complete unaccountability, but it would help to um, act as a sort of anti-competition thing. Cause I mean, it's evident in football from what I've at least seen as an outsider, that there's a hell of a lot of corruption and that's not really possible if there's just more fingers in the pie, cause someone will be like, Hey, you're taking more than what you're really owed.
0: Yeah. I, th- I think, I think jumping on from that as well. I, th- I think, um, I think something that football and music do kind of share is that, I mean, I, I don't know how biased I am coming from Liverpool where obviously both of those things are like hugely important to the sense of place. That I think a lot of scouts have. I think, sorry, but football and music are things that, I don't know, I think Labour should actually be paying a lot more attention to politically. Like, I, th- I think that, I think that, you know, although it might seem that there's limited political call for that sort of thing. I remember, I think it was on the New Statesman podcast, um, you know, the, the godless off-left Stephen Bush said that um, football might be the way that Labour could uh, break, quote, cultural halitosis, which I thought was quite, quite a good phrase. But sort of something that's what, what that I noticed um, sort of when I was a teenager was lads I went to school with that wouldn't necessarily be, weren't necessarily political. Like, you know, they were sort of scouts and they hated Thatcher because you do. But they got into non-league football, specifically the non-league football team in Liverpool, which is uh, the Perps City-Liverpool FC. And they got into them and roughly at the same time became like, massive socialists like they'd, they'd sort of they'd see the power of like oh shit like this community ran collectively owned enterprise is like good it's doing really good things what if we applied that to like yeah what if we did that things? for the shops yeah absolutely yeah like what if we did that for the economy like like, and, you know like it really worked like we you know within like within like three months of them go like going to the first perps game they were like oh yeah like you know can't wait till the world transformed this year and you're like where did this come from and you realize like it's such it's such an important cultural vehicle because you know it, it's it's sort of you know music football these these are such foundational parts of culture i think that it's quite used to build up a critique of broader things from them because they're so prevalent within society more widely absolutely and it works both
6: ways there's a, there's a sort of appreciation both ways in that you know i don't own a single strip but I will drop easily 50 quid to go down to clapton's football ground and get that that strip i'm dying for a clapton fc strip (laughs) just because i need i need those three arrows on my chest like it's it's a it's sick and b you know it does encapsulate my values and yeah in terms of um the political elements that could be uh mobilized in this respect this is why it's a huge shame that Labour leadership isn't taking more of a run on this from um a music perspective one of the biggest advocates for grassroots music is John Speller. And that is an absolute joke. I shouldn't like stand John Speller because he's one of the only MPs that's bothering to challenge property developers. Because he put forward, I think it was called the, it was either the agent of change or the act of change bill. And what that meant was that if a property developer was to redevelop or build new property within a certain proximity of an existing music venue, they would have to pay to soundproof the music venue, which protected them because it wasn't like, you can protect your own flats and then be like, it's still too loud. It's like, no, 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 you had to do it to the venue. And it meant the venue's got to save money on developers, like infringing on what was really their uh, grounds, you know, their audio property, I guess. And yeah, like this came from a backbench MP who for all, for any other case is a complete melt. That's terrible. I should have John McDonald going like, yeah, we're going to nationalize vice and take the old blue last back into public hands, which it never has been. But re- this is revisionism, so this is a shame.
0: That's like a really good point. But I've read so many Joker takes, and I've just got like brain poisoning to so the minute you said, like, agent of change. All I've got now is like <laughs> Joker makeup saying I'm an agent of chaos. <laughs> Honestly, I need, sorry.
6: I need John pl- McDonald dressed as the Joker, <laughs> storming the offices of Melvin <laughs> Ben. <laughs> <laughs> and turning Festival Republic into a giant workers' co-op. That's the thing, there's so many people involved in these industries. If they did actually become workers' co-ops, they'd be hilariously stable. You wouldn't have Isla White crashing, because like, there's so many people it's accountable to. And so many people could be like, oh, we're doing badly. Do a little bit extra this year, lads. You could absolutely do that. That's not going to be a problem. There's so many places the music industry exists in. But unfortunately, because no one else has bothered to pick up the mantle, again, we have John Speller, or we have... Michael, uh, is it Dua? Dugger? I can't remember how to pronounce his name. The dude who was like vehemently anti-Corbyn. He's now the head of UK music and all he does is tweet about how bad Brexit is and how much he loves the Beatles. There's never anything of like actual substance like, hey, um, the borderline has just shut down uh, because Tory austerity has meant that local councils have had to increase business rates and that's hitting us. He doesn't bother with that. He's never bothered with it because it's not his prerogative. All he's there to do is to be like, yeah, I hate Brexit and I love the Beatles, which is, you know, again, if there were more people involved, we could be like, do you have any other views?
1: So we've spoken a little bit about um, different ownership models and fan ownership and things like that. How do we think the reliance on external capital um, affects the culture of both sport and music?
6: Well, from a music perspective, like, advertising is hilariously uh, prevalent in how we're funded, you know, Spotify is still not profit making. And the majority of the work it does to become even breaking even and even is from in browser advertising and stuff like that. And the thing is with advertising to put on my uh, Chomsky hat is that it does reinforce, um, already consented to values. It does reinforce, uh, you know, masculinity. It does reinforce a position of women of race relations. Uh, of acceptance of various norms and in music that is one of the contributing reasons to why you know if you dissent against if you dissent against any level of white supremacy if you dissent against uh you know traditional women you know if you if you're one of these people that says don't call female front of the genre you're not going to get pushed with the next, like next to the big adverts because that's not what the industry wants because that's not what the, you know, advertising industries rely on, stereotypes and archetypes. And as soon as you start to challenge them, you're not profitable to them. So you will get dropped. And in that respect, you know, if if you're poor and you start to challenge the model itself, you're absolutely gonna get squeezed out. And what happens at that point is that all you have left are the complicit and you know, archetypally right music industry kids getting positions of power. And I think that works. And I think this kind of theory of like advertising when it becomes too big, essentially reinforcing a cultural norm is one of the big reasons why um, in football, it's so difficult for footballers to come out as homosexual because the footballing industry relies on such a prevalence of machismo, and masculinity and heteros- uh, heteronormativity you know if you know is it like Gillette if Gillette started doing adverts that were like you know a bloke waking up and going to his husband this is just something that is so not going to happen that it's just one of these things that won't ever fall into place with football until it starts to really get challenged and that's not going to happen as long as advertising is so prevalent as long as masculinity and football can manifest themselves via the capital investment of advertising it's not going to change so we need to have an external force to push that capital out and as soon as it does as soon as it does that you'll start to have more ground for you know disruptive uh disruptive narratives
0: of these things yeah no i think i think i think that's very true um i think that yeah like culturally in football the the where capital is concentrated is you know very yeah pretty much where you were saying um i think i think you know um so, so i just keep thinking about um at the fact that yeah at grassroots level um there is very often quite a nasty culture um i i, I play football throughout most of my childhood and the, other, the number of times that the opposition coach would be like someone's dad screaming like just kick it, like, just kick him, got, you know, like, lads slide in for two-footed challenges and you have some dad on the sideline going, you know, well done, which is a pretty, pretty grim culture to be playing football in when you're, like, 14 or whatever. And, and, you know, and a big part of that is because the concentration of capital at the top end of football are sort of, like, untouchable elite of the premiership and the sort of absolute absence of any real interest in youth football means that you know you have a situation now uh to just so just to get a sort of coaching badge um you know the basic one costs 150 quid level two is i think 340 quid I i think those prices are right but don't hold me to it but you know that for a lot of people that's a lot of money to fork out with absolutely no return just to coach a football team unpaid full of children So what you basically, where, you know, whereas in the continent you have a lot of the times badges will be subsidized in some way, um, and what you basically, what you basically have therefore is a sort of funding crisis where you have unqualified parents screaming at children, which does, I think, reinforce quite a grim, quite a grim culture of machismo because, you know, in the absence of any technical knowledge. You th- you know, you kind of resort to the blood and guts like just kick him stuff. And you know, when, when the Premier League was founded, I think it agreed it, it agreed to give five percent of its total income, which is about eight billion quid at the moment to uh grassroots football in the UK. Uh it never actually gives that much. Uh in 2017, I think it gave a hundred million quid. And Tracy Kourouch, who was then sports minister, uh you know gave this whole speech where she basically was like look how well i've done because i've you know secured like what less than 1% of their funding to go to like the next generation of British kids who want to play sport and you know there's like there's petitions to like you know help change things um but on the whole i think what's actually needed is a labour government that you know actually imposes these sort of rules and regulations on the premier league to help redistribute
2: some of like that all. Hello, uh, I'm here with Lines.
7: Hey, yeah, I'm Lines. I'm uh, at that interlace on Twitter. Uh, Lines is just one of the names I use, but uh, Lines is the name I'm using in this context. Uh, I am a Labour Party member, uh, getting more involved with the party in the last few years. I'm trans. Um,
2: What's prompted this discussion is uh, the announcement last night, last night being our time, um, via an article in The Times, which revealed that Number 10 has been polling culture war, culture war in quotation marks, um, issues such as transgender rights um, to use in that upcoming early election, which may or may not be happening within the next couple of weeks. Lines as someone who is trans, um, how did it feel i guess when how how does it feel when you read stuff like that like um government policies affect all of us but with regard to government policy specifically about human rights um like does it do, like how much does it like personally affect you i guess
7: uh i mean basically it's well shit uh <laughs> like like uh so i, I think the thing has happened with uh the trans debate in this country, and it's sort all of happened. I mean, you know, five years ago, we had the quote unquote trans tipping point when everyone was all, the, all these cis people, that's non trans people, uh, were sort of realizing trans people existed for the first time. And, and incidentally, of course, you know, many of the quote unquote debates that are happening now have been had for years and years and years and within the trans community, within like trans and other people and people who are LGBT, you know what I mean? Like, it's these are not new debates, but suddenly everyone was like, oh wow, this is interesting, the trans exists um and essentially we're, we're kind of mid moral panic I mean the times is not neutral on this the times pretty much every week puts out a violently transphobic article that's just a thing that they do uh, it's clear clearly an editorial policy uh, so I sort of feel like even their inclusion of it in this article is, is sort of part of that kind of that, that is just a thing that they do uh, most major british publications are actually more transphobic now than they were five years ago because the debate has kind of hardened and gone to this really weird place that just feels you know I' frustrating thing i might say sometimes that I'd rather people just forgot we existed again uh, i don't actually want that but like it's 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 not good to feel like your existence is going to make a tory government more likely i don't want a tory government um and and actually, I mean, I, I still have some very random over on Twitter a bit, but I, I sort of feel it a bit. I don't like being used as a prop by either side. You know, I, I think sometimes support for trans rights has become quite a totemic thing now. I don't think it should be. I don't think it. Uh, sometimes you get people who, who I'm sure are perfectly nice to trans people, but, uh, and who would say that they support trans rights and quite loud about it on Twitter, but perhaps don't engage with the actual issues that trans people have or listen to them. And uh, I mean, I think there's parallels in lots, lots of spheres where that kind of thing happens. I mean, in general, it doesn't feel great uh why doesn't it feel great because you sort of feel like you're kind of being you're made to be complicit in evil and evil has been done to you that's that's not good
2: why do you think the government are doing this because you mentioned you'd rather in a way that you'd rather they just forgot about it and 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 didn't make uh, trans issues as big a deal as they do um that's always been like my personal like i don't get this about um Right wingers and their like vociferous uh, anti-trans positions—it's kind of like, what, what, why do you care? Like, it is completely irrelevant to your day-to-day lives. You, 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 could make that application to numerous different political positions and, and ask why they're making such a big deal out of it in the first place. But why, why do you think that the government is? Going forward with polling like this,
7: because they suspect it to be a workable. I don't really buy that it's sort of not. For, it's it's going to be popular in northern working class constituencies, but it's going to make them unpopular with metropolitan liberals. Because let me tell you, metropolitan liberals writing for like mainstream newspapers is going to be absolutely as fucking transphobic as the rest of people. You know what I mean? Um, so I don't really buy that. That um, was mentioned in the answer. Yeah, like, that's what I mean. The article says, you know, oh, they're going to weaponise against Labour and Northern working class constituencies, but it only reinforces the Tory's reputation among metropolitan liberals as a nasty party. That's not the case. I think it's quite clearly the case that lots of people who are metropolitan liberals, whatever that phrase means, actually are perfectly happy to throw trans people under the bus. And actually, the flip side is not true. You know, I have friends who are Northern working class trans people who live in northern working-class constitu- constituencies and are accepted there. So it's sort of based on this fucking false premise to begin with. But I think there's something that's current there because actually I think really what it is is that they are trying to successfully do the thing that the right has done in America, which is to make these kind of culture war things a wedge issue. They want to force labor actually to take a pro-trans position in reaction to it which then they will they will use cynically as has happened like time and time again you know we've seen lots of examples on twitter yesterday you know they did this with kind of anti-gay rights stuff in the 80s of course we shouldn't forget of course you know when it was being done against gay rights then which was the mainstream view there were still trans people there it's not like we were suddenly invented five years ago um, and uh, going further back, you know, they've done it with uh, racial issues in the past, obviously immigration is used all the time, you know, I think these kind of wedge issues where things become kind of cultural bugbears where you have to take one side of the other, a massive thing. What they're trying to do actually is not really... Um, uh, uh, it's basically trying to get those people who... I mean, you say, why do people care? Um, so, I mean, if you are, quote, unquote socially conservative, and you believe in, you know, reasonably traditional gender roles, I guess, then obviously trans people are a threat to that. Obviously, actually, the real people who they're trying to get are people who think of themselves as progressive and feminist but think that trans stuff is just going a bit too far. That, that's actually the people who seem most susceptible to this rhetoric nowadays. I think we shouldn't forget that, like, uh, transphobia and, uh, you know, people who very virulent about it online at the moment, is absolutely adjacent to the alt right. You know, we've seen um major trans exclusionary radical feminist activists in this country, and people I wouldn't really who are just anti trans, I, I wouldn't even give them the dignity of calling them radical feminists, although clearly some of them are. Where basically there's funding coming from, say, the Family Research Council in the US, who are kind of major evangelical kind of they've done a lot of anti gay stuff and so forth in the US, and and a lot of funding is coming in here, you know, there there are all these sort of links between evangelical, all the stuff we think of when we think of US culture war, and they they are trying to import it to Britain, which is, of course, we we are in many ways, in our media, more transphobic than the US kind of liberal media is. I think in general they are trying to um, get these, make these things issues where they kind of weren't in the same way before, I mean, the Gender Recognition Act was passed in 2003, under vague sufferance, the government lost a human rights case, the Equality Act was passed in 2010, there's absolutely reforms I do to trans stuff, one of the things I'm really annoyed about is the way that the May government sort of pushed ahead with um, wanting to do Gender Recognition Act reform, yeah great, there's definitely ways it could be improved, it's pretty rubbish right now, it was pretty, you know, progressive in 2003, but it's 16 years later or whatever. Um, but they completely fucked it up, and actually, I think, and especially in Scotland, this is happening. The SNP are doing it. They've really back, they've kind of backtracked on a lot of stuff, um, bowing to the uh, anti-trans people in their own party. Um, what we keep seeing is that politicians make these milk toast attempts to maybe be nice to trans people, um, and then of course, it, and actually, it really just creates this constituency of people would be massively against it. The reforms they were proposing in the first place weren't even that good, and now we're in a worse state because we've whipped up all the fuckers. Um, And it just sort of feels like the people in Downing Street, including, you know, the Dominic Cummings and all all, all those kind of scary people, the people who pay attention to such things have gone, yeah, I think this one's got legs. Do do I believe Dominic Cummings personally really, really, or Boris Johnson really, really hate trans people? I I don't think that's the terms in which they think. I just think they're cynical enough to realise that it might be a vote winner. Just like I don't know really how Dominic Cummings feels about people from Turkey, but he was perfectly happy to create a virulently racist uh vote leave campaign because he cynically knew it would work they'd done the polling that's what they're trying to do they're trying to work out exactly which ways they can be awful not necessarily because they share the awful ways although it's quite likely they do but because they want to then unleash those forces and win an election
2: you were talking about the
7: gender recognition
2: act there um and how it's shit, uh, as you say uh, and and um the processes uh could be improved uh what what improvements uh can be made because that because that's an an area of politics which i know absolutely nothing about so what like reforms could be made under a future reforming labor government do you think
7: sure that's a great question so okay i have a f on my passport i have had sort of medical stuff not everyone does and that's okay too but like you know like um i haven't got a gender recognition certificate i haven't accident why haven't i done that um so you have to have done have to have like two years or more of medical evidence uh you have to send it all off to them um y- it's really quite onerous you've got to get uh, you've got to pay a notary to sign a thing that says you're you know you're committed to this stuff there's a it's a huge complicated massive paper form you send it off to this group of people who will never see you see you uh, if they refuse it instantly uh, and you get if, you, if they send it back and say we need a bit more evidence you get a chance to do that but if they refuse you it that's it for life uh you can't try again uh it's a massively stressful paperwork laden process i'm rubbish at paperwork i haven't got around to it but i am a woman in almost every respect that matters i have an f on my passport the world treats me like that um i think i would probably qualify for the wrong pension age and a few other things and marriage would be complicated if that was the thing i was thinking about but it's just this weird kind of anachronism because actually the standard that the passport office apply to get your gender changed is you get a letter or whatever from your gp or your doctor which which actually isn't ideal but like okay um, what i'm saying is at least this is the lower standard you get a letter from your GP or doctor saying this person has gender dysphoria they've changed their thing you send off some proof that you have changed your name and, you know, you pay your passport renewal fees and then they send you back your passport because they don't care. HMRC was a 10-minute conversation. HMRC has got a special unit where they just sort of send you through and they go, all right, one of you, ticket it through. Actually, many bureaucratic processes in government know how to deal with this stuff, but we've still got this kind of anachronistic, stupid, overly overwrought sort of thing. You know, when people talk of, have this moral panic about self-ID, you know, the, the, I, I, the problem is the system is just horrendous piles of bureaucracy for no reason other than to put people off. Um, technically under our system you don't need to have undergone medical transition but actually in practice that's kind of what you have to do what i'd like to do is be able to fill in a statutory declaration saying i've transitioned send off send that off get a, and get a new birth certificate and, and make sure i'm all squared away if i was imprisoned there's a good chance i'd be sent to the mail estate i don't know i don't know at all but it's terrifying I'm lucky in that I'm white and I'm middle class and I'm quite well-spoken um, and all those other things which means I'm unlikely to go to prison um, but it's still terrifying A it's suppressive. You know, I was thinking of going to some of the protests and then I thought, but if I go to a protest and I'm arrested, where will I be put? Those are things that I shouldn't have to be afraid of and sometimes the trans debate can get into this stupid endless abstraction and not talk about people's actual lives and concerns it, it gets very frustrating so if i yeah if i was going to reform it i think y- essentially something where you sign a stat a statute declaration which is of course a legal document so you can't be fr- if you're fraudulent on it you have committed an offense um send that off but remove all the needs for sort of waiting and onerous and, and times and kind of onerous amounts of evidence Actually, in the long run, I mean, you know, there's a, there's a thing called the Yogyakarta Principles, which were an um, attempt by a UN a human rights group to um, sort of pin down general sort of gender rights uh, kind of across the board, if, like uh, and to trans stuff, but intersex stuff as well, and a bunch of things. They were, I think, done about ten years ago, and they were updated about five years ago. Uh, like, in the long run, why is it that the state needs to care what my gender is at all? Why do I need an, a letter on my passport? at all. what if we're gonna have marriage from if anyone if any adult can get married to any other adult, why is that necessary? You know, actually if you think about it in a very radical, kind of mildly anti-state sense, why is gender something that needs to be regulated by the state? But if it has to be, clearly the process to change it should be timely, humane, lacking in bureaucracy as much as possible, all of these things which it absolutely now isn't. As I say at the time 2003 was the. um, I don't know. Do you know how uh, it became possible that trans people couldn't marry in law in this country? It's quite interesting. I don't know. So I think in the seventies there was this lord, right, who 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 married a trans woman who was you know post surgery or whatever, and very very good looking, very lovely. I think she might have been a model or something. Um, And they got divorced, or or they broke up, and he took her to court and said. I am not married to this woman because this woman is legally a man, so we were never married. Clearly not something he thought of all the time that they were married, but now the relationship had broken up. We're not married, so she shouldn't have any other legal protections under law, and the courts agreed at the time. And that, before that time, actually in this country and law, trans people did have the rights. It was only, that aberration was only created by essentially a rich guy taking his wife to court because he didn't want to pay her alimony. Which you know, so it it actually,
2: and that law hasn't changed to this day. Already... Well, no, so
7: I say has so, over, so the Gender Recognition Act in two thousand and three, sort of undid it. That changed um, it. That changed it, changed it. it. and, I, and it, I think it was a result of um, I can't remember the details, but a trans woman took the UK government to court. It's one of the, it's one of like the twenty times when we've had a judgment against us in the European Court of Human Rights. Right? They basically said. This is—they uh, issued a, a like a, a declaration of incompatibility. They said basically, look, uh, this precedent that's been established by this course case, which is part of your common law, uh, is incompatible with uh, whoever I can't remember the her name, the person the woman who took them to court, it's incompatible with he, her human rights. Uh, actually, they've ruled especially that actually it's incompatible to even require medical transition before doing this. It, that's one of the things that called that case. This was all in like 2001, something like that, 2000. Um, and that led to the government at the time, the Blair government, uh, the first Blair administration, basically, or a second, I guess, second, uh, bringing forward what became the Gender Recognition Bill and then the Gender Recognition Act. And like i say at the time, it was pretty progressive. Uh, sort of a funny story of a small world. I used to be a teacher, um, and I it turned out uh, one of the students I taught was one of the civil servants who, was, who draft, helped draft the bill. This uh, was oh, before I'd come out of trans. Yeah, it was pretty cool. Uh, and he was really pleased about it at the time. And like, a lot of, kind of trans activists at the time were like, this is pretty good but like these things move on which i think is the yeah. thing that cis people sometimes don't really get it's the way in which trans discourse internally moves on and kind of queer discourse moves on and people feel different stuff and, and language changes i know this can be kind of confusing to people sometimes but you know whatever like i, I think I, I think it's you know recognizing that people are not where they were 13 years ago not that everyone wasn't saying the things that people are saying. no one was saying the things that people are saying now 13 years ago but perhaps they they're to they're listen to more and as you say people just don't know this stuff so it sort of feels like trans. Issues are kind of coming out of nowhere and actually we're talking about decades and decades of history people have this idea of history as this sort of fantastic upwards strike where we get more and more progressive but actually it's not things can go backwards so yeah it's frightening now when we see the rise of obviously actual fascists kind of the fascist adjacent people the new, this current government who are you know definitely willing to pull on those tropes yeah it's frightening because actually It's not inevitable that we defeat them.
2: What more can Labour be doing and what more can Labour supporters um, and also also people not in Labour, progressively inclined people, what can people be doing to be pro-trans and show solidarity with trans? So
7: I think the best thing people can do is listen to trans people, to know trans people in their lives. Um, to to hear them to uh, to accept that we're not homogenous that there's a head there's a massive mass of opinions i'm speaking here but i in no sense to speak to anyone other than myself and i wouldn't even proceed you know presume to i i think um just accepting that trans people exist um uh, listening when they when they, they say things you know not treating our existence like something that needs to be debated i think it happens with other groups too you know you i i don't think i wouldn't do but actually of course I think almost every marginalized group gets talked over, and I think that can be one of the most worst. That can be one of the worst things. Right? There are things on which I wouldn't just try to talk over people. I would try to listen. I would try to understand, and I'd make the effort to do that. Uh, I'm not saying I'm massively successful at it, although I really try my best. Uh, I think if people do that as well, that's good. That's a start. Um, I, I, one of the questions that uh, the Twitter social reviews Twitter asked was like, how can we support trans people who want to be internal or external candidates? And I think one of the most important things there is uh, making sure you have us to talk about things that aren't trans issues. Like, I'm happy doing this today, because clear I can talk my leg off about this. There's, <laughs> a host, there's a host of other political issues on which I have opinions. Trans people don't always want to just talk about trans stuff. Sometimes they will, and actually sometimes naturally also trans stuff will intersect with other stuff, or will give perspectives on stuff, and that's good and useful too. You know I, I think something I've not seen written a lot about in quote 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 mainstream sort of writing is the alliances that can be made between sort of trans activists and disability activists I think there's some stuff about bodily autonomy and right to uh, kind of humane treatment by healthcare professionals and so forth which um, I think there's a lot of common ground there there's a good YouTube video I saw recently which I, I guess I'll, if I could send a link to you after this I'll, you can maybe put it in the podcast description or whatever, yep. the re- Yeah. a yeah. really good video I saw recently from someone who works with a human rights activist in Northern Ireland who, so she does a lot of stuff with disability rights, I think she herself is trans and she was talking about kind of the way in which these things sort of feel similar, um, I'm not going to paraphrase her words because she said it better than me um, but it was really good um, I, I think there's something about I mean, uh, on the medical stuff, actually, just to finish, like, like um, I used to maybe trust doctors. I don't trust doctors anymore. Like, it's not that I've had a terrible time, but also the other day I found out my GP, who's meant to have been doing monitoring blood tests for me for two years, they've been doing some of the blood tests, but not all of them, and so in some major regards, my some of my trans healthcare just hasn't been monitored by a doctor for two years. Like, uh, it, that there's this sort of... You, you just... When you interact with doctors as much as many trans people do, you sort of lose kind of that instinctive faith in them as authority figures that many people sort of have, not they're clearly not all, a lot of people have those bad experiences. And that's what I mean about those common alliances. So giving trans people kind of the space in conversations to draw on their own experiences, but to talk about more general stuff, I think that can be really powerful.
2: for so listening to another episode of the social review podcast thanks to everyone uh, for coming on and talking to us this week uh particularly thanks goes to will and tessa for coming back after so many episodes away uh, and to david and to lines and to peter for making their podcast debuts i do hope you enjoy listening to them if you particularly enjoyed the podcast then you can check out more of our work at the social where we publish exciting articles and essays week in week out and uh, peter and williams articles about football which they refer to will be published in the coming days and if you really enjoyed the podcast then check back next week and every week thereafter as we release new episodes weekly analyzing everything that's going on in the world and british politics at this incredibly volatile and turbulent time who knows what will happen next week thanks very much have a good week and goodbye
1: Right, I think we should stop recording because this bit's probably not going in. But yes, (laughs) Um...
6: (laughs) we'll let Jasper be the one that decides that one thing. Yeah, if if he
0: wants five minutes of us yelling random Tory backbenchers' (laughs) names and (laughs) pretending we massively care about them as they cross the house, I've always (laughs) loved Philip Lee. (laughs) He was always my (laughs) favourite. Followed
6: by ten minutes of us just chanting, "Here we fucking go."
1: Right, I am stopping recording now. Jasper, there's a bit where I just, in the middle of a sentence, say, please edit this out. Can you just edit around that? (laughs) It's, like, really badly done from me. I should have left a gap. Anyway, sorry. Bye.